Amen. Thank you. This morning we continue our series on the seven deadly sins by the title, Windows into the Heart. And having looked at gluttony and lust and greed, we turn this morning to envy. Remembering now as we begin that these are not the most perhaps serious sins, although all sins lead to death. One could think of other things worse than envy, for example, murder. But this week as we turn to envy, we see that it is a very serious matter indeed. Sermon outline on pages 8 and 9, if you'd like to turn there and follow along. And now let us give attention to the reading of God's Word as found in Numbers chapter 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, Oh, if we had meat to eat, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Grass withers, flower fades, word of God stands forever. Shall we pray? You know us, O Lord, and we, we love to complain. We love to compare ourselves to others and hope it would be favorable, and when it isn't, we make excuses and we criticize and all the rest. And so as we look into this matter of envy this morning, we know that we are guilty. We know that we need insight as to how to deal with this matter because indeed we are wasting away from it. So guide us in our moments together this morning, we pray, and prepare us for the Lord's table as we come before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, in Numbers 11, the people had been set free from their bondage. They'd been sent into the wilderness, and they were now under the leadership not of Pharaoh, but of Moses and the direct intervention of God. But it wasn't long before they said, we're tired of the food. We don't like it. And when they sat down to eat, they thought of what they used to get, what they used to have, and they were not satisfied. There was a bad comparison. They didn't like the offer. They would have passed if they could. Envy had crept into their hearts. We begin this morning with a little bit of a definition. The first one is a secular definition. One comes out of the dictionary. Envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone's else, someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck, good fortune. We don't believe in luck in the Christian church. We believe all things work under God's providential hand and for his purposes. But this is the world's attempt to describe a feeling that is very real. There's nothing theoretical about this. There's nothing that hap- about this that happens to some and not to others, or that happens only at a certain period of your life. You begin this world envious of more of mom's milk and more food and more warmth, and we go out of this world envious that we might have lived a little longer or lived a little better when we look at other people. Looking more closely into the root meaning of the word, it means in the Latin to look with ill will, to cast a glance against someone because of what they have. To look them over and to see what they have and to see what you don't have 
and therefore to respond with ill will. Envy is a comparison of what I have or what I used to have. In this instance, the Israelites are comparing themselves to what they used to have. My life is not what it should be, what it was, and I'm upset. This is listed in the, in the New Testament, this word envy, and as one of the rivalry sins, one of the sins that's characterized by uh, relationships between people. Gluttony doesn't have to involve anybody else, but envy does. And it's one of the rivalry sins like quarreling and strife and outbursts of anger and selfish ambition and factions and jealousy. It's everywhere. In preparation for this sermon, I heard the word many times, not the least of which Friday when President Obama said that our economy is the envy of the world. But the Bible says envy can be a deadly thing because it can eat us up. Let's look at some of the illustrations. From Job chapter 5, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. That sounds serious. It's not just an inward thought, a passing comparison, but a serious result. And let us be reminded from Matthew 27 that it was out of envy that the religious leaders handed him over to Pilate. Envy is a deadly thing, and it was the proximate cause of Jesus' crucifixion. It was the cause, furthermore, of Abel's murder, of Saul's hatred of David, of Korah's rebellion, of Joseph's brother's hatred of him, of the elder brother's bitterness when, in the prodigal son story, he came home. He envied that the brother was receiving, there were a lot of complicated feelings here, but one of them was Envy with the prospects that his brother had after he had ruined everything. Envy is one of the listed in the New Testament in Galatians 5 as one of the acts of the sinful nature. We are told in 1 Corinthians 13 that real love, true love, does not envy, does not give itself to envy. Symptoms of envy I list now. Envy tends to be narrowly defined as jealousy, but it goes deeper than that and is mentioned more often than jealousy. Jealousy oftentimes is used in terms of God's concern for us, which is an entirely different meaning. But in this instance, it's similar to the sins of greed and gluttony because it is a sin of discontentment and impure longing. I want what they have. I want what I used to have. And it consumes me. It fills my thinking it turns my insides cold. You know the feeling. It happened in elementary school. It happened in the neighborhood with your friends. It happened as you grew up. It happened as people started dating. It happened as you got married. It happened as you started off in life. You looked at people your own age and stage of life. You looked at them. They had what you didn't have. And your response was to envy them. One would say that's a natural response and a common one. Indeed, the human heart seems bent in this direction. Verse 4, literally, our, our souls are dried up. We are dying because we have nothing but this manna. There is not enough to sustain us. We want something else. What I have isn't enough. I used to eat better in Egypt. Now, 
set aside the fact that things were much worse in Egypt, I want to focus on this one thing. And one of the things that envy does is distort your perspective so that you don't see things in totality. You see only the thing that you want, that you must have, that you desire above all else. It doesn't give the proper context. The Israelites were far better off. Their every need was provided for. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They had all the water and food they could use. But because it wasn't in some respects as rich a fare as what they had in Egypt, their hearts turned cold. As I say, envy is the thing which keeps us from being able to sit down with all that's in front of us and enjoy it. They sit down to their evening meal, and it's just manna, and it was, fully, it was nutritional and, and fully providing the nourishment that they needed, but they didn't like it. And so they said, in effect, I could be happy. I could be happy. I, I could be happy. I could be bought. But what I have right now is not good enough. Look at the flaws. Look at what's wrong. Look at what we could be having. I could be happy, but not like this or not with this. Not like this or without that. that. There's a sense of deficiency. My happiness has now become dependent upon what other people have or don't have. And so we waste away in bitterness and discontent. A heart at peace gives life to the body, says Proverbs 14.30, but envy rots the bones. This is deadly then. This goes all the way down. This touches us deeply. And as I say, we use it in art and food and friends and possessions and career. We're never happy with what is in front of us. Never content with what we have. Picky, 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 God could say. Look at what I've given you, the banquet feast. And we say, well, it's just a little cold. Or, where are, the, uh, where are the onions? Where's the, uh, where's, the, where's, the, where's the dressing? We can always find fault. And we can always imagine or see things that we don't have and allow those things, <coughs> excuse me, to consume us. So picky, picky, picky we become. And we also become cranky, critical. We despise what we can and don't have and what others do. Cain despised his brother's offering. He despised the appreciation that God showed to him. He couldn't stand it. He rose up and ended his life. So envy is a deadly sin because it gives a window into our heart that shows that something is desperately wrong. Last week, Kevin spoke on the matter of greed, mentioning this great verse in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. But the envious are not experiencing contentment. When envy takes over, contentment goes out the window. We must have it. We become morose and cranky, as I say. We... We say, why did they have it and I don't? Why did I have it and not now? And envy consumes us. 
Now, what are the proximate causes of envy? Well, there are two, and one of them is temptation. You'll remember after Jesus' baptism, the very first thing that happened, <clears throat> recorded in the Scriptures and in the Gospels, is that he was taken up by the devil to a high place, and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink, and he was tempted. And among the temptations that he faced was the temptation to envy the kings of this world and to envy their power. So Jesus knows how this feels. He knows what it's like to live in a regular world with regular temptations. And envy doesn't always start with our heart. It may start with a circumstance or something we notice or see about in someone else's life or something we dream about and wish we had. So part of envy comes to us through the passage of temptation. And don't think for a moment that Satan isn't interested in turning your head. Never think that when he gets up in the morning, if he ever sleeps, that he doesn't think about you and trying to disrupt your life. And so he will lay for you any number of temptations. Temptation to envy. And that's a, a real, I mean... This would be bad enough if there was no devil, but the devil is pretty good at what he does. He has a long track record of success. He has brought ruin in many people's lives through this very means, and he will continue to use it as long as it works. So temptation may cause you to envy, but secondly, it could very well be that you don't trust God with your life. You don't see him as trustworthy. Jesus answers Satan by saying, we should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. And again and again, he answers the temptations of the evil one with a reference to the Word of God, to Scripture. And what he's saying, essentially, is what you offer is fine, but what I have in God is better, in my Father is better. I see what you're saying, all the kingdoms of the world, and the ability to jump off a high tower and live, and have all the power and life that I could want, and not have to go to the cross, not have to surrender my life unto, unto, unto evil men. I get it. But I trust him. And I trust his word. And so I'm going to be content. I'm going to be satisfied, Satan, in your presence. This is the very thing that Adam and Eve did not do. When confronted with the prospect of eating the forbidden fruit, they wanted what would come from the taste of it, they wanted what would come from the knowledge of it, and they ate. And for them, God was not enough by himself. And his prohibition against eating from that one and only tree was not enough to keep them from turning away. But it was enough for the son. And so I say, because we have nothing but what God has given us, we believe we're going to dry up. If we rely only on what God has done, if we rely wholly on him, we're going to lose. We're going to die. It won't be enough. Surely Jesus felt this again in the garden when he wondered about the sufficiency of God's grace to carry him through the ordeal that he faced before the 
mocking and beating of men, the injustice of it all. But God says, as in Deuteronomy 8, I fed you on manna as, he comes, come, as they come to the end of their travail. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell. You had everything you needed. True. But envy makes us forget that. Envy makes us say, I want this and that will make me happy. When the real question is, don't you have enough? To, haven't you been given what you need and more? Against the evidence, then, they and we decide that manna is not enough and we fear that we will dry up. Well, we will, for the, the root word of envy is a sort of inner wasting away. It eats away at us like bitterness and anger. So because you don't really trust God, the things you turn to cannot fulfill you the way God was supposed to. The idea was to give David, you know, this vulnerable man, Saul's armor so that he could defeat Goliath. It didn't fit. And the things that we want for ourselves that think will, will truly protect and sustain us don't fit. He gives us what he wants. And don't you see that when we are envious, we are also insulting to our Father. It's not enough that we're wayward, but we are throwing back in his face his many kindnesses and grace and provision. We're saying, thank you, but I want more. Now, this is the attitude of a child. Children do this. We are called, however, as Christians to grow up in Christ Jesus, and Jesus didn't do that. Tempted as he was, he did not sin. And he said to his father, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he went forward to do battle for us. Envy makes fools of us all and insults and strains our relationship with our father and causes us to be ungrateful children. You know how you feel when you give something to someone and they say thank you and set it down and don't turn any attention to it, seem unimpressed by it, you feel nonplussed, you feel angry, you feel hurt. How much more does our Father look upon all the blessings he has showered upon us and see us give way to envy of what others have or what we used to have? But there are cures for this. We're not just stuck in this situation or prospect. And I want to give four suggestions, to, steps to take. You could pick any one of these and it will help you. Don't have to remember all four of them. First of all, one option is to focus not on what is absent, but on what is present. To replace complaint with thanksgiving. Envy with contentment. Mind your own business. Count your blessings. Give thanks. This is one of the great resources that God has given us. We can replace a bitter and self-destructive emotion and action and attitude with something positive. And so we, we, we turn our focus, 
We'll do that again in the third point here, but especially in this first one. We focus not on what is absent. We say, okay, it's a fact. I don't have that. Okay, it's a fact, but look at all that I do have. I could complain that I don't have that, or that I used to have it and I don't have it now, but I'm going to be content. And I'm going to be thankful. Thankfulness is one of the most practical resources that God has given us. And one of the great works of the Spirit is to turn our heart of avarice and greed and lust and gluttony and envy into hearts of contentment and peace and thanksgiving. So this, this is, I wish I could say I use this all the time, but when I have used it, it works. Secondly, remembering that this temptation is one of the causes of envy, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not just replacing what you want with contentment or thanksgiving, but actually facing up to the devil and saying, leave me alone. I don't want this. I've been down that road and I know where it leads. It leads to bitterness and self-wasting and I don't want to go there. So get away from me. That's what Jesus did in the desert, and we walk in his steps. Leave me alone, devil. Get away. And he will flee from you. He will not lurk around forever. He'll come back again, as he did with Jesus, at an opportune time, it says at the end of the temptation. He did come back. He didn't give up until the end of time, and when he's thrown in the lake of fire, he will not give up, but he can be resisted, as James tells us. Here's the third one, and this is really wonderful. From Romans 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and mourn with those who mourn. Look at that stake over there. I can't afford it. I've got this little hamburger. Well, I'm glad he can. She can afford it. I don't hold it against her. Rejoice. How's your steak? Maybe they'll give you a piece. <laughs> rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody's got a new boyfriend? Be happy for them, even if it's the guy you had picked out for yourself. Somebody's got a new car? Rejoice with them. This is a great event. They just made a significant purchase. They obviously shopped and decided they were going to get something. That should be not a cause for self-comparison and anger and bitterness and envy. It should be, hey, great, let's take a ride. And mourn with those who mourn. There is another side of it as well. Finally, we replace what others have with what you have. Even if I never get that rich, even if I never live that long, even if I never have that thing, even if I can never be able to purchase or to do or to go to that particular part of the world, I have Jesus. I have Jesus, and that's all I need. When I think about it, and we should, that's all I need. I don't have to have travel the world. I don't have to have whatever it is on the list of things that you might envy. Because I have Jesus. And that's enough. Right? 
It is. What it means at the heart, then, my friends, is that envy means that you are really despising the true manna from heaven. In John 6, he tells, he says, I am the bread of heaven, and I have come down. And I've come down to be your sufficiency. I've come down to love you and to take care of you, to give you what you need. And many, it says in John 6, turned away and followed him no longer. Jesus knows this. It says in John 2 that he knows what was in man. He understood it. And he loves us anyway. This is the good news. We're not hiding anything from him. And our little envious escapades, wishing we could have this or that or the other thing, doesn't surprise him at all. He sees it all. And he loves us anyway. He refuses to be cranky with the cranky, picky with the picky, to despise the despisers, and was in fact despised for us. We look at Jesus on the cross, who would envy that? And so, as Isaiah said, he was as one from whom men would hide their faces. Oh, no, how grotesque and awful what he did for us. He was despised and forsaken, rejected. So here's a one-question test, yes or no. Are you an affirming person? Affirmation comes from being able to battle envy, battle the devil and his offerings, and turn yourself from being a cranky, narrow, and critical person as to what you don't have or what doesn't please you into an affirming person. For some of us, it takes longer than others. Indeed. But can you love people in spite of their being and having what you might want? Can you rejoice with those who rejoice? Are you able to be content with what he has given you? To count your blessings and to be thankful indeed for what you have. Truly thankful. Perhaps envy has done you a favor. For it has pointed out to you what you must have or life will be tasteless. Then you must break its hold on you and run to him. What do we have to have? Finally, how can you despise others when he did not despise you, but was despised for you? How can we go all the way to where envy leads us? The end of the line is bitterness, crankiness, and criticism, and unhappiness, and a downward spiral of self-wasting inside. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to give us what we truly need. And this table today is a reminder that we have been provided all that we need. Peter says we have all that we need for life and godliness, and this table is the proof of it. So we can live without that boyfriend, that car, that vacation, that promotion, that position. We can live without them because we have something greater. Or maybe that's the problem. Maybe you don't see him as greater than those things. This is the struggle that I have, and I'm a preacher. I just don't always see that he's greater than those things, and so I lust after them. I want them. I envy them. 
and I take my focus off of my sufficiency and place it on all these other things. And I forget that Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God, then all these other things will be added unto you, right? That's what he said, and he meant it, and it's true. So let us seek first his kingdom, let us focus upon his sufficiency, let us rejoice in his table, and take our eyes off of these deadly, envious things that we've got to have. I conclude with this statement. If I was in the Garden of Eden today, with my heart operating as it usually does, it would not be enough. Can you imagine? That's what we're saying. Adam and Eve had everything. They had no sin. They had eternal life. They had everything that they could want for food and and protection and subsistence and beauty, and everything was provided for them. And if I was in that place, what we're saying this morning in this message is that with my heart operating as it usually does, it would not be enough, just as it wasn't for them. We walk in the sins of our fathers. But Jesus is good enough, and he died to make me good enough, even for the Father. If anyone's picky, it's him. If anyone has a right to be discontented and critical, it's God. With his awesome law and his perfect justice and truth, he's the one who has the right to be unhappy. And especially with our complaining and dissatisfactions expressed in so many ways. But he sent his son, who tenderly resisted the devil, vigorously resisting him and then tenderly cared for us, who understands our weakness. He understands all about the architecture of envy and more. Everything I've said this morning, he could tell you times ten about how envy works on the human heart. Whatever it is that you've got to have, let it go. Let it go. Because you already have what you need. Shall we pray? In the solemnity of these moments and coming to the table, Lord, we are reminded of how distorted our lives have become by unhealthy desires, desires out of control. We want things. We want stuff. We want what other people have. And over the course of our lives, Lord, we've often gotten what other people have, and we found out that wasn't enough. We wanted more. We set our sights on something, and we pursued it, and we attained it, and then we said, oh, not so much. And we wanted something else. Help us to see this destructive pattern. Help us to let go of it. Help us to not be consumed by it and be cleansed instead by seeking first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added in due course. For when we get to heaven, our inheritance will be unsurpassed. And our rewards will be beautiful and sufficient. And we'll have no more needs or desires that are out of order. But in the meantime, make our desire for him who desired us. The one who might have despised us, who instead gave himself for us. As we come to your table now, Lord, won't you fill us again with a vision of how great Jesus is and replace our envy with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.